Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department. Let's see more. Few places on earth have been as mythologized as the East End of London. From the Cray Twins to the Hammers from the East Enders and the Queen Victor, I'm forever blowing bubbles, gangsters and only fools and horses and all the rest. I talked to John Lowe, who comes from the East Ends and now lives in Dublin. He is my first guest on my new show, Paddy Englishman. John Lowe, you are very welcome. What is the East End of London really like behind the image? Well, I suppose my formative years would have been just after the, uh, after the Second World War. Uh, things were really tough then. Um, lots of things were on ration. Austerity was biting. And, you know, people just made do. It was, it, it, it was very tough. Um, what I did, uh, in fact, what my family did, and a lot of uh, people from the East End did, and it was brilliant, we used to go hot-picking in Kent. Um, and every September, we'd go off for up to a month. And this was the only time people uh, in the East End ever got to leave the East End, you know, because they couldn't afford holidays. You might have the odd person that knew somebody that had a caravan and went to Ramsgate or something like that, but by and large... Uh, the hot picking was the only way you'd go anywhere outside the East End. And uh, that was great. I used to love that. I was there for many years. So this uh, kind of image of the, the East End as being a place that was pretty poor, a lot of post-war uh, poverty, uh, and obviously during the Second World War as, as well. But that's very much a true reflection of what it was like when you were growing up. Yes, absolutely. And the, the other thing which was was very prevalent, uh, the violent crime uh, w was rife in the East End. This is even before we talk about some of the well-known characters, because people had nothing. So they, there was lots of crime, and as a result of that, um, the police literally did take a hiding. You know, there was... Uh, Armed robbery was, every day there was armed robberies all over the place. Oh, uh, when are we talking about now? We're talking about probably um, the early 50s, mid 50s, that, that sort of time, you know. Um, and uh, crime was virtually out of control in, in, in some areas, you know. So the most famous criminals uh, of that particular crime lords were, of course, the Cray twins. Now, I don't know... Any group of uh, crims, other than maybe Al Capone, who've had so many films and books uh, made about them, written about them. Uh, so did you ever see these, well, Ronnie yeah, and I, Reg? I knew them very well because um, my aunt, Madge, uh, ran a pub in Bethnal Green um, and it was called The Lion. And they actually came there on a regular basis. And how it started out was that 
one day one of their lads turned up at my aunt's uh, pub and said, lovely pub you've got here, missus, uh, you, you need somebody to look after it for you, you know? And um, my aunt, who, who was a very worldly person, um, didn't take, you know, anything from anybody. Um, she said, look, sling your hook, otherwise you'll go, you know, out of that window. I'll throw you out. <laughs> <laughs> which she actually said, you know. Your so, aunt said yeah. to Ronnie and Reg Craig. No, no, this this was one of the, of, of, of their people, of their minions, so, you know. Yeah. He came in to case the pub and to find out if it was a good place where they might come once a week to sit down and sort out their business and divvy out all their ill-gotten gains, you know. So um, eventually um, the two Craigs came into the pub and... Uh, said oh I believe your name is Madge and my aunt said that's right yes um one of our lads was here the you know about a week ago and uh, you didn't seem to be too pleased to see him so she said no I, I I wasn't you know I knew what his game was and I'm not giving money to anybody and uh, apparently they laughed and they said well Madge if it's okay with you can, can we use this pub once a week to do our business so she said, you can do whatever you like as long as you pay your, your rounds, you know. So it started off, it was very funny. They came in and my aunt had me sitting at the bar. I, I was probably only about 13 at the time. Um, and she said, all you do is just sit at the bar, keep your mouth closed. And when they need to get another drink, come up to the bar, I'll give it to you. You take the money. And what used to happen was that they used to get a pint glass and ram it with notes. So every time they got around, it was taken out of there. I went over and gave them their change, and I was making fabulous money. And then, of course, I was clearing up the glasses. I did this quite a lot, you know, um, maybe once a week when they came in. So I got to got to know the the craze, all their henchmen, and and of course, to me as a young lad, they they were fine, you know. I didn't know, or nobody knew what was going on beyond that. <laughs> Well, I presume people in around the area did know what they were up to. And, I mean, uh, certainly Ronnie Cray, whatever about Reg, Ronnie Cray seems to have had the extra element of some kind of mental illness going on there. Uh, he must have been terrifying. Well, it, it's, they were terrifying to... It, it, it's like the old adage, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the gangsters, you know, they... They compete with each other, but not with the onlookers, you know. So what used to happen was that people knew what they were up to. Um, and they didn't so much turn a blind eye. They just didn't want to get involved. And, of course, like a lot of uh, gangsters, uh, you know, going back years and years, uh, they um, did a lot of charity work. So they helped the local church. And the local priest or vicar, whatever it is, they wouldn't have a word said against the craze because uh, they were putting in money to the church, you know. And and this was great PR for the craze. They, they knew they knew how to handle this. So everybody sort of thought, well, they, they can't be that bad, you know. Look what they've done, and they've you know done this for the church, and they've done that for the church, you know. Okay, so the real time experience of the craze was was complex and multi layered, really, in in the sense that. Presumably they knew how to look after, as you're saying, their own community and that they needed PR as well. Because I was wondering, how did 
the craze themselves rise to the top of that so quickly? They um, were both uh, very uh, tidy boxers, as, as we'd say in the East End, uh, as young lads. So they knew how to look after themselves. Um, and they, they saw what was going on. They, they used to go to the snooker halls and see that there was a few you know, wide boys there and what they were up to. Um, and they saw, I think, one of the stories was that they saw one of these, these lads come in and, you know, try to threaten the owner of the snooker hall. So I think, I don't know if it was Reggie or Ronnie, went over um, and said to the owner, is, is, is this man giving you bomber? So, well, leave this to us. And they turned around to the guy and said, look, we don't want to see you in this place again because if we do, you, we won't be, um, you know, answerable for our actions. So that's, that, that's putting it nicely, right? <laughs> so your man left and that was that. So they go back to the owner and said, well, if you'd like us to keep an eye on this place, you know, and uh, we're very reasonable, uh, you know, five a week or whatever it was at the time. And that's how they started. Um, then they did it with pubs. So they started to get this this mini empire. Um, and this just went on. And then uh, as they were getting more and more money, they were, they were hiring more and more, you know, henchmen. And they got ambitious, you know. And I think the, the, the next thing they were uh, trying to... Um, I think was a nightclub. This is going on some years, you know. Well, they got into. I mean, I know they they eventually got up to the West End uh, of London, but they they got, I think, into considerable disputes with the Richardsons gang, who were South London and much. But that's it. They apparently. they uh, they. What happened was that the Richardsons were, as they say, south of the river and uh, or over the water, as you'd say, and. Um, uh, the craze kept to the East End. I think there were some fracas, you know, over the years, but they, they more or less, it was more or less decided that they keep their own territories, you know? Because and, there's some people who work, kind of work for both of them. That's uh, right, Like Jack yes. the Hat McVitie, who was yeah. eventually uh, killed um, by, by Ron. Um, and uh, George Cornell. Do you know the story of George Cornell? Because it wasn't your... Was it your uh, auntie's pub? That no, you no. George Cornell, I think, was killed in a quite well-known pub called The Blind Beggars, which is on Whitechapel Road. Um, and as it happens, um, the only way that um, it was... Uh, was it uh, Ronnie, was it? That, that, was it Ronnie that killed him? Yeah, he went straight in and shot him. Yeah, well... What happened, they had done a few things over the years, not so much murder people, but main people, and nobody would sort of say, look, it was one of the craze or whatever. They were really, you know, afraid of their life. But in this particular case, Ronnie went in and shot your man, and there was a barmaid there, and she was Australian. And what happened was that the police quickly... Um, knew that this was a great opportunity to get the craze 
because they had somebody that would give evidence that was not from the East End or whatever, and they could protect her. And I think in the end, what happened after the trial, she went back to Australia, whatever. But the breakthrough for the police, and it was, I suppose, in, in those times, it was the beginning of the end for the craze. Um, she gave evidence, and that's what convicted him, you know? So you have got the, um, the, the, the honour of saying that you uh, were a, 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 a bar boy or a, a, yeah. a, a collecting glasses from Roggie, uh, Ronnie and Ronnie Reggie. Ronnie and Gray. Reggie, yeah. Uh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. uh, and did you ever feel afraid of them? No, not at all. Uh, it, I, I suppose it, it, in those days uh, they had a local reputation but they were kind of admired by the by the locals because here they were looking the part with their you know mohair suits and camel haired overcoats uh, slung over their shoulders it, like a gangster movie like George Raft in the 30s mm. you know um and um as long as you, as i say as long as you didn't do anything that was going to incur their wrath um there was no problem you know so as as far as i was concerned these, I knew that they were local kind of celebrities in quotes, uh, but no, there's no problem. They're always very, very nice to me. Um, always, you know, before they were leaving, said, come here, son, there you are. And uh, whatever it was, five bob, you know. And I used to come away from that pub. Jesus, it was unbelievable <laughs> the money I had in my pocket. My mum couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, this is a new uh, sort of interpretation of the craze, uh, how, how they made a young boy rich, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro, make friends with innovation. Just moving along from the craze, uh, this, you know, the 50s and then the 60s when they were finally done, I think it was in 1969 when they were con finally convicted. Uh, what was the East End of London like at that point? Like, when did all this regeneration start? It started, my memory of it was around the 80s, is that correct? It would have started probably before that. It would probably start in the late 60s, early 70s, in certain areas. Um, I mean, there is a classic area which, when I was growing up, was always, if you like, posh. It was a posh square called Tredegar Square, which was off the Mile End Road. And the houses were something like out of Belgravia. And I think it was because the the um, the land around was owned by a, a toff, you know. I think it was Lord Tredegar. Um, and uh, the houses had always, I mean, you looked upon them as being you know, God, all the posh people living here. And that was going way back to the, the 60s, you know. And so what happened? Um, Tredica Square uh, was the area where you'd see a lot of, uh, I suppose, professional people, you know, which was a bit unusual because it was, it was like an oasis within, you know, Mile End. But then gradually um, 
as people saw that they there were sort of if if you like professional people uh buying the houses in square and the streets off them it spread so that you had um i mean i know an old friend of mine lived in one of the streets off that which was a place called aberavon road and stupidly in the in the i suppose late 60s uh he was renting the house and he had a chance to to buy it for whatever i, I can't remember something ridiculous like five thousand or something and i said to i said john you should do this this is as they say an up-and-coming area you know um and uh he didn't do it so i mean his house now would be worth you know two million um and it spread around that particular area um and there were some old uh, pubs that um, were gentrified, you know. So in the old days, uh, on a Sunday, there would be a, a fish stall outside and there'd be jelly deals, you know, and everything. And then it was um, turned into a gastro pub, you know, and, uh, you know, um, Cumberland sausages and, you know... Uh, Garlic. And this was when in the eighties? No, this this, this would have been in the late sixties, early seventies. So even then, it was happening. Yeah. So then the kind of uh, the so the, the uh, uh, Canary Wharf and yeah. all of that stuff. Well, that that, that made the, the headlines because it was on. There were old warehouses that had been there for years and years and years and years. And I don't know the genesis of it. I mean, as you were saying, the Long Good Friday film, that, that, that was very interesting. And I think that was made in the early 80s, was it? It was actually made and it was completed by 1979, but it yeah. wasn't released until, um, I think, 1991. So uh, that was an area um, which, as I say, was, was derelict or there were some old uh, warehouses. Now, I don't know who had the idea for this, but suddenly some of these old warehouses were being renovated and turned into apartments. And to start with, you know, a lot of people, I think, in the property business, thought whoever was responsible for that, uh, they were either very far-sighted or mad. So it started like that with one block uh, and then another block renovated. And then the uh, where the dereliction was, they started to build new apartments and it just started like that and it boomed and then the commercial companies came in and the banks the you know insurance companies or whatever and before you know where you are you've you've got this mini city it's like gotham city around there now it's around canary wharf i don't know if you've ever been around there i have we did a gig in the in that building called the gherkin yes which is an extraordinary looking building uh, both inside and out. In fact, the security getting up into it was, <laughs> I was going to say, you'd easily know you're in the East End of London, but but uh, it was quite a, a, an amazing experience. But uh, like that, I have seen it, and it does look like Gotham City, but it's it's where a lot of the financial district is there. Well, that's it, very much so, yeah. I mean, a lot of it has moved out from the so-called City of London, Uh because of rising rents, I suppose, um, and uh, people relocated. I mean, the classic one was uh, the the Rupert Murdoch organisation. They uh, relocated to Wapping, you know, and 
people sort of thought this can't work. They've moved out of Fleet Street, and then other newspapers moved. The the Telegraph moved out of Fleet. So you've now got the you you, you now got this business hub, uh, and then latched on to this other people building the apartments. So in that Canary Wharf area, it's I mean it. It would probably have a population of a, a small city in Ireland. You know, it, it's it's amazing. And then the surrounding areas. You were talking about places like Hackney uh, and 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 Dagenham and all of these other areas became kind of like uh, were initially, you know, as you know, not very fancy, but they became well. It's, it's spread out. I mean, yeah. it, what's actually happened is that from the hub of the the East End. Uh, as property prices rose and rose, people were moving further out. Mm. So they'd move out now to along, I suppose, the central line, uh, which they'd be going to uh, Stratford, Stratford East. They'd go to Wanstead, you know. Um, although those places had always been relatively middle class, but people were move it, moving out there because they then couldn't afford the apartments in the East End. So it, it, you had this, this new scene altogether. Do you think there's any resentment amongst the people of the East End, you know, for the fact that their that their place has become gentrified? I think really what's happened is that the people, the if you like, the indigenous uh, people from the East End, they were being moved out anyway, um, and under this so-called slum clearance. Um, building these awful tower blocks um, and some of the uh, the houses re- they, they they had the foresight to to retain some of these Victorian terrace houses but they knocked down an awful lot of them um, so what happened is people were presented with an alternative you could either move move out or as they said in those days move down the line and moving down the line as you say you could be barking Dagnum you, you you could go south of the river as well but uh and then a lot of people if they didn't want that they um took the new uh, tower blocks or took a you know a flat in the new tower blocks that were being built so a lot of them uh didn't leave the east end but they probably left the area that where, where they were uh, brought up i don't think there's much uh Resentment. I think a lot of people sort of say, "Well, um, that's the way it is. That's the evolution. You know, it, you know, people come and go. People, you know, and and that's it." You know, one of the true uh, kind of um, beacons of East Endness is, of course, uh, West Ham Football Club, uh, Upton Park. Uh, I only found out, by the way, that Upton Park was actually the area was called Bowlin on the very last day when they moved out of Upton Park. Which I love. It's got a very medieval quality to it. Yes. Often Park itself. Did you used to go to watch oh, the God, Hammers? Oh, God, did I? Yeah, I, I first... I'm a lifelong West Ham supporter. Um, I first went there when uh, I was four. And my dad put me over the turnstile. That's how it used to be. <laughs> you know, he clicked in. He put me over the turnstile. Um, and then we went up into the stands and I would sit, sit on his knee, you know. Um, and uh, I... Um, started going um, 
started going then, and like I've, I've been a fan ever since. It's it's not easy to be a West Ham fan. Um, they've had their moments, you know. Um, was or oh, they certainly have. I mean, they've had some very good teams, and they've had a lot of uh, very good uh, players, including all the way back to, you know, Jimmy Greaves, Bobby Moore, and all of these guys. Um, well, I knew I. I was brought up with Harry Redknapp. He lived in the next street to me. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so I knew him very well. And it was funny, actually, because um, he wasn't a particularly good player, but there were players that, you know, played w- with him and me that were better. In fact, I would go as far as say I, d- I was possibly better than he was. But Did how you, he... Oh, no, I didn't. No, I, di- I, I didn't... Um, get anywhere simply because the way it used to work in those days he went to a very good primary school that was that pushed the sport so he went to a school in Poplar um, and they had a very good sports teacher that pushed all the kids uh, whereas I went to a school there in Mile End and it was terrible for sport um, so at the end of the day it was so bad that between me and another few lads in my class at the time we formed our own school team and applied to join the league, you know, the local league. Uh, we joined and we, we won the league by a mile <laughs> because we had so many good players, you know. It's, and did you get trials or anything for No, I did. Well, let's say no. I went, I got a trial for Cholton at one stage, but it was a, a farce. We turned up at the valley, which is the, the Cholton's ground. Yeah. And there must have been about 10,000 kids on the pitch, you know. And you're given, you're given about a minute to see, to, see how good, to see how good you were, you know. And uh, I think I touched the ball once and that was it, you know. So uh, that was the, the end of my, uh, you know, my days, you know, uh, uh, the big time, if you like. My, uh, rec- my sound recorder here has passed me a note to say that um, you, uh, you... Knew George Best? You met George Best? Is that correct? Well, I met him. Like I think it was some sort of reception, the same as a lot of people. I did. I, you know, I think I might have shaken his hand. Oh, that, okay. that, that, that was that was about it. My in the big time, but I um, did you see him play? You must. Have. Oh yeah, you know that he played in Ireland. I, I I saw him. Would you believe at Howells Cross when I think it was it Shelburne playing there at one stage at Howells Cross. They, sh- they may well have done Shelburne. But he wasn't, he was actually playing for Cork, Cork. at the time. It was it Cork Celtic or Cork Hibernian? It was one Jeez, of the I can't other. Remember. Yeah. All I know is that they got a massive crowd there that, uh, you know, and he didn't do much. In, 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 I don't know whether he was, he was kind of on the way out then, in, you know. I remember uh, Barry Fry got him to play for Dunstable uh, in, a, in, in, in a non-league match. Um, but I think the whole idea was just that they would say George Best is playing and he did play and it would draw a huge That's crowd. Right. I think yes. it drew about 10,000 people. So it got... Well, they, I remember at Howells Cross that match, they, I mean, you know, it's only the, the ground track, so it's not suited for football, but they got about 5,000 people down. I remember that, you know. Bobby Charlton, I know, played for Waterford for, for a few matches. Gordon Banks, I think, played as well in the League of Ireland. Uh, Oh, it's again, been a few. Yes, these guys were, were were at the end of their careers. Obviously, yeah. they were given some money to come over uh, and so on. So, so you, what was Harry like? Uh, no, it's okay. It, it's um, but he he, as I say, he had one asset. He it was very fast, and he played on the wing. He played on the right wing. 
So basically, what would happen? He'd get the ball, and he'd go like blazes down the wing, you know, um, and centre it over. And it became very proficient at that. But I would never regard him as, you know, a good player as such. He he was very lucky that he got into a West Ham team that um, had some great players. I mean, you're talking about Jeff Hurst, Bobby Moore, mm. you know, Martin Peters. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the people around him, and he just had to do his bit going down the wing, and it was fine, you know I mean? He, I think he would even admit himself he wasn't such a great player, you know? No, he has this reputation, as you know, as a kind of original East End ducker and diver. Is this ducker and diver East End character um, based on any reality, or is it just a personality type that you'd get anywhere? No, I think really that there'd always be, uh, you know, people from the East End, would always be regarded as, as they say, wide boys, you know? Because it, literally they did at to duck and dive, you know. Um, and uh, I, I suppose I actually had an uncle like that. You'd, you'd call him a ducker and diver. Um, and he made a fortune during the war because what used to happen when, you know, people were half starving. So he had the foresight to jump in his car. He had a car, of course, in those days where most people didn't. And he'd drive down to Essex to a farm and you'd say to the farmer, look, if you can butcher me two animals, two, you know, uh, heifers or whatever, uh, I'll give you good money for them. So they did all this for him. It was all parceled up. Uh, he went back, you know, obviously, and they had it all parceled up and butchered. And he'd sell it around the East End, you know. Um, like, for example, if you want to, um, wanted to, uh, a bottle of scotch, which is almost like gold dust to get, you know, just after the war. Uh, he'd know somebody on the black market and he'd go out and buy a case of it and sell it at a huge profit. You know? oh, so you had to be resourceful. Well, that's it. I mean, it, 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 it was... Uh, in fact, um, he dabbled in um, confectionery and I remember he used to have this uh, lovely house, actually, just off, the, off Mylan Road, we had this basement. And as a kid, you know, about seven or eight, I went round and he said, go downstairs and I'll give you something, you know. So I went downstairs, it was like an Aladdin's cave. It was stacked from floor to ceiling of bars of Cadbury's whole nut chocolates and everything. You just, you just couldn't get this stuff. Uh, I didn't ask him, obviously I was too young, how he got it, but he just bought it from the you know people that got it off the back of a lorry mm -hmm. and then he sold it on to the shops you know <laughs> and uh like for example you know in those days to to have like a, a half pound of cabris whole nut well i mean you, you never saw it it was like a gold bar and um i remember it's like my my mother used to, <laughs> used to break it up and she said two squares that's all you're getting <laughs> <laughs> Two squares of chocolate That's right, uh, yeah. post-war would have been presumably a huge thing because such, I mean, wasn't during the Blitz, I mean, I think the East End was flattened largely, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And yes. wasn't the, when they, the people sort of saying we'll eat paper and stuff like this and, and it was, uh, so to get chocolate, chocolate's better than paper. Oh, yeah. Well, the, I mean, the Blitz, as you say, everybody was affected. I mean, like, for example, I think in the East End, there was something like 30,000 people killed, you know, in, in, in the Blitz, you know. Um, and on a sort of funnier side, I always remember this story, an aunt of mine 
uh, people used to go down to the shelters, obviously. The alarm would go and everybody would scurry down. But this particular aunt of mine, she said, look, I'm not going. If I'm going to die, I'll die in my bed. And she was fearless. Um, bombs were falling all over the place. So she went to bed. And anyway, uh, what used to happen, they'd get the all clear. The all clear siren would go about six o'clock in the morning. Everybody would get up and go back to where they lived. So I think in those days, my aunts, a couple of aunts lived together. It's two or three of them anyway, and their families. Um, so they came around the corner and the first part of the street where they lived, the first part was flattened. They thought, oh God. They came up to the house where they lived. It was intact, but the front window was blown through. So they thought, oh God, you know. So they go into the front room where my aunt was uh, in bed. She was still fast asleep, but the, the bed was covered in shards of glass. <laughs> I thought, God almighty, that's so funny. So this must have created a very, <laughs> a very um, uh, resilient and tough... I was, yeah. I mean, it, 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 I think it's all part of it. There, there, there is you know this myth you know that you know you it's hard to get out of the east end if you like you know um but it, it you know because you know people didn't have much um and then what made it worse was that you know the um the blitz and they, they had even less and people were losing losing everything they had you know one of the things that i've been told about the, the east end was that after the war that a lot of men of a certain age had been killed in the war uh, so there was a lack of male authority. Do you think that might have been true, or well, there there was um, there as as I, as I think I, I mentioned earlier, the, the crime and violent crime w was rife from the late forties and the early fifties mm. because of austerity mm. and the people had nothing, and so there's a lot of armed robberies, um, and they. The consequence was that the law was absolutely brutal. You know, I mean, that was the days of capital punishment, and the number of cases of uh, people being executed um, who were totally innocent, and it was because the law in those days wanted to get its, its own back. You know, I think a famous case that you might know of in the early fifties was. Um, Derek Bentley. Yes. And mm. it, that was horrific because what actually happened was that he uh, w wasn't the brightest of kids. Yeah, I think he, 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 he would be on the spectrum now. Like, or, or, or he would be regarded as uh, autistic or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, you know, you, you get a, a, a lot of uh, coverage about, you know, autistic kids and people. Um, but I often wonder, I don't know if you do, Gary, I mean... What happened when we were growing up? Did you know anybody that was autistic? <laughs> well, I think I probably did, but I don't think... We didn't it, call it that, did Yeah, we? and I don't know. No. And there was there was no wider understanding of it, but there were very definitely people who behaved... Oh, I knew loads, in, in, but in I don't know what they, you know... God helped them. God helped them to be growing up in an environment like that yeah. when you had, you know, dare I say it, significant, uh, significant difference. Um. Can I just ask you a little bit about the actual the history? Because when I was, was researching this, I, I sort of noticed that the East End of London really didn't become a thing in, in, in the 
kind of uh, embodied form until kind of the mid-19th century. You know, the East End was outside of the city walls, right? So initially, what kind of was, what comprised the East End? Well, what happened was that the East End was an area where the land was cheap. And so you got the, these landlords building these horrific blocks of, of flats uh, and cramming people, you know, they, they were all tenements. And as it happens, um, there were loads and loads of Irish people. They, I mean, the, the Irish that came to England... They, they, they gravitated towards if they were going to London they gravitated towards the East End because that's where they might be able to get somewhere to live very cheaply so that's how it started in, in these uh, massive tenement houses uh, there were also the old Victorian houses which were made into tenements and it, it soon became an area for, that, that people knew that they may be able to get somewhere to live in the East End, whereas they wouldn't be able to do that in the West End. So that, that's how the, the area, you know, became, uh, you know, what we know uh, as the East End, with the, these old tenements being built, but still you'd have the loads of old Victorian terrace houses. Some, as I say, are still there, some were demolished. Uh, and it just got its reputation from that. You know, this this is um, an area where people are very hard. <laughs> you, you had to be hard to survive. You know? Yeah, it's interesting the the Irish angle to the East End of London again, it, it, as as the kind of diaspora narrative goes in this country. Irish people were not in, the, in this country. They weren't ever associated so much with the East End of London. They were associated with maybe Liverpool, uh, but uh, maybe Manchester but not the East End of London. Uh, it's interesting, but you're saying there were lots well, of Irish it, people it, there. Well, it's probably, uh, it went, the, the East End connection probably went, uh, you know, under the radar. But, I mean, even uh, my, I, my background is my great-grandfather was Irish. He came over to live in the East End. He lived in a, a tenement building. My great-grandmother was Irish, she came, he came from Cork, she came from Limerick. And I've traced them in, in the census. Uh, they had about eight or nine children and he was uh, down as a labourer, you know. Um, and uh, I can't trace when he died, but I, I, I picked him up coming into the East End in the 1860s, living in Whitechapel. Okay. And looking at the census forms, it's amazing how many people... It said Irish, 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 loads of them. Um, and, <coughs> excuse me, it was very much an area of Irish immigrants, you know. And I presume as well, it, there was a lot of ship handling and dockers who came from there. Well, that's right. I mean, if you look at the docks, it, so it, loads of Chinese, you know, they, they, they came off the boats and God knows where. Mm. And merchant seamen, so like Limehouse, uh, you'd have... Um, all these dubious, you know, cafes and sort of joints and whatever was going on there, I don't know, but it attracted seamen from all over the world, you know, so there was a bit of a cosmopolitan area as well, you know. Um, can I ask you just a little bit about the more recent uh, regeneration as well, like the Olympic Stadium in West Ham's new home, <laughs> so, yeah. as you know, and uh, 
what what that did for the East End of London. Do you think that that was has that left a good legacy? I I don't to be honest with you. I don't think it's done anything for the the East End of London. It, basically, what's happened is that they've built a you know a, a big stadium, and the uh, West Ham supporters that they, they they have to gravitate towards it because whereas they used to go to Upton Park, um, this is now at Stratford. It's not far. It's only a few stops on the tube, but. Um, it's it's done nothing really much to the infrastructure of that area, as far as I can see. You know, they've built a big bus station, and you know, there's a few cosmetic, you know, sort of touches. A, a, it's a big shopping centre, but by and large, it, it's it's not done much, as far as I can see. And the show EastEnders, do you think EastEnders see? a reflection of them in that do you think that's realistic there's certain parts a, a, a lot of it it's like you'd have stage irish you know they're stage eastenders you know they're, they're they play to their stereotypes um but a lot of people um wouldn't really recognize themselves you know it's it's, it's a bit cliched you know uh, one question i can't help ask you is about in the sort of 60s or certainly the 70s and 80s it was a lot of football hooliganism uh, and this this idea of the firms, you know, uh, following certain football football teams, and the the West Ham ones, you know, is the intercity firm. Well, that was one of them. Did you ever have the misfortune of bumping into any of this? Well, I when I was in London, um, you you'd obviously keep away from it. But the interesting thing about the the, the these groups. They comprise lads with pretty good jobs in the city, and it's, it's unbelievable, you know. Um, and uh, p- people expected, you know, uh, when they uh, were, you know, taken to court or whatever, that they're going to be a typical East Ender. Some of them, you know, you, you might say had quite posh, you know, accents. And I just wonder sociologically how this came about. I, I don't know. I mean, I. I d- I'm not that interested in finding out, and I kept away from them. But thank God, that's well. Hopefully, that's gone anyway. Yeah. Well, w- sociologically, where did it come from? The yes. idea of football hooliganism. Well, it's an interesting question because it's not quite as simple as saying these were poor lads with nothing and they just no, wanted to go and fight. Absolutely not. I, I, I'm not sure it's that simple. I think one of them described was in some other firm, a Liverpool firm, described uh, just the buzz. These are young men in armies, effectively yes. in armies, and going to do what armies do. So maybe, maybe it's something to do with uh, 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 there's no longer a national conscription uh, and national service, so that kind of thing. Uh, did you did you have that, by the way? No, I didn't. No, I was, I was too young for that. But going back to them, I think the the the, the only good thing about them, if there is a good thing is that they um, try to kill each other rather than kill any innocent bystanders. You know, they, they, had, they had this intelligence, all oh, the so-and-so firm are going to be at the Fulham match, you know, and so on, and they're all going to stand outside the, the King's Arms in the Fulham Road or whatever at, you know, 12 o'clock. That sort of, you know, uh, um, connection. And, um, but they had to be infiltrated, of course. Hugely that's it, absolutely, yeah. yes. Uh, boxing as well is another uh, huge thing from the East End of London. Uh, well, the craze, as I say, I yeah. mean, they were they were both very good boxers in 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 the young days, you know. And did you see any of the kind of young Alan Mintner's types? Yeah, I, I used to. I that? mean, the, the in, I used to go with my dad, you know, and you know, you'd, you'd see. I mean, I remember seeing going back 
don't you remember Randolph Turpin? He he, I saw him and the place to see him and and it's still it's still a venue uh, is York Hall in Bethnal Green. That was the place to go, um, and um, a lot of um, lads from the East End, uh, South London, whatever became quite competent boxers and and Terry Spinks is another one that comes to mind. But um, I think once again it comes back to people trying to break out. The only way out, you know, of you know, mm. I can I can make money, I can make a, a name for myself. But it was also a discipline as well. Absolutely, the way yes. to keep out of trouble. Yes, other kinds of trouble. Yeah, and some of them did so uh, with with uh, Nigel Ben. Was he an East End boxer? No, I don't think he was. Oh, no, he? Oh, I no, thought he was. No. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, a lot of them from uh, from the East End. Uh, I mean, the the um, Henry Cooper was not from the East End, but it was South, South London. But once again, they most of them from very ordinary backgrounds, you know, if you like, and they, if you like, they bo- they box their way out of it, you know, of, the, of their, their of their surroundings, you know. And it's kind of fascinating. I could talk to you all day about the. The history of well anywhere particularly, but but in this case East London. Um, what did growing up at that time in the nineteen fifties into the sixties? What did that give you, John? What did, what what did you take from that? Well, you you had to be tough to survive, and anything. For example, um, the school that I went to um, wasn't a great school, but I, I was lucky in that there were one or two good teachers. One of them, in fact, a Dublin guy, I always remember, Mr. Byrne. And um, he said to me, he said, Lo, look, you're not going to learn much in this place. <laughs> he said, I advise you <clears throat> to go to night classes. So what do you... And I, I actually left school at 15. Um, and um, I used to go to night classes to do English literature and English language and art. And I managed to get a couple of GCEs as as, as they were at the time, but um, the, I, I you know I I started work at fifteen, and I went to work in a newspaper office in Fleet Street. So that probably gave me um, the bug, you know, for getting into journalism or whatever, you know. So it gave you an education uh, in uh, 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 not so much an academic way but a, a rounded way of life yeah. particularly if you're meeting the Cray twins <laughs> early it. on yes. yeah. you, you knew what was what but yeah. so the characteristics resilient well you uh, had to be tough, you know you, and, you, and because nothing was given to you on a plate you know and so. and resourceful yes yeah okay well on that note um, I think we'll uh, we shall uh, leave it uh, John, thank you very much. It's been really interesting talking to you uh, in a very authentic and first-hand account of what it was actually like. You're the only person uh, who's spoken, uh, I've ever heard of, who's spoken of the, cra- the craze as people who gave you loads of money. Great stuff. Love you to meet you, John. And thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Gary.
An will phone poke new awet, an will knappi no fum nis orjoet. Nis eskalehusod, faker na phone intakata gwin, an cho, egg daro. An von klishte is deni, gidi gohan la hai glina, agus taskina. Tarod egen, gogachtina. Tanismo olis, egg, daro.com.